Our last lesson was meant to give us a, a biblical overview of worship. It, it took two Sundays to do it. And the idea was that we are creatures. We were made to worship God and that God is, is, does, he has designed us such that if we are not worshiping him, that we are deficient, that we are actually, he frames all of life in terms of worship, Adam and Eve in the garden, worship, Israel, worship. Um, and so hopefully we've got that, that framework down so that as we, we've looked at church history, we looked at the New Testament, we've seen Jesus as the consummate worshiper, as the one who, who worships perfectly and, and uh, you know, imputes uh, through his finished work, his finished worship and replaces our flawed and failing worship. Um, but with the coming of Jesus, we are called to worship corporately as a church. We're called to gather together to do this thing that God has made us for. We're meant to do this together. The church has always recognized this. But as we go further, we need to rewind a few centuries before the birth of Jesus, back to the time when Israel still had the temple. And the reason is because when we look at the New Testament time, I want you to understand how we get the things that we see in the New Testament. You need to see how the stage has been set. And so to understand that, um, we need to talk about the synagogue. Now, um, let's see. One of the things that we did in the last lesson was we talked about the temple. We talked about the sacrifices. We talked about uh, the various festivals. We talked uh, about the different kinds of sacrifices that there were. But one thing we didn't touch on was what your average Jewish person is doing, if, especially if there's not a temple nearby. What are they doing on a regular basis? Are they, are they still worshiping in some way? Do they only worship when they go to the temple? What if, you live, what if you live hundreds of miles from Jerusalem? How do you worship? How did an average Israelite worship on a, a weekly basis, right? The Jewish people observe the Sabbath normally. Uh, they, they followed the, the Sabbath laws. What are they doing each week? How are, they, how are they worshiping each week? And that's where the synagogue comes in. So the word synagogue means, here we go. Oh, you're going to see my, oh, I have awful Greek handwriting. <laughs> oh, it's just horrible. You should avert your eyes. Uh, but I wrote it with a permanent marker, so I couldn't erase it. Um, but the word is synagogue is the Greek word. Uh, synagogue, it's synagogue. The word means gathering. If you do a concordance search in your Bible for the word synagogue, does anyone know, does anybody know where you won't find it? You will not find it in the Old Testament. You won't find any Old Testament text referring to the synagogue. And, um, and we'll talk about why that is. Initially, the term, it's a Greek term that means gathering, which is really similar to the Greek word ekklesia, which means church, right? It's the word that we use for the gathered church. Um, so the word synagogue and, and the idea of the synagogue and the idea of the church, not, not wildly different from each other. Um, initially, the ter- it's a term of action. It's a re- term of the action of gathering. And then later on, the word, instead of meaning gathering together like a verb, it becomes the gathering. It becomes the place where the gathering happens. Think of the word church. The church uh, is used this way too, right? We talk about the church. What are we talking about? We're talking about the gathered people, right? The people are the church is what we're trying to say, right? And then oftentimes you'll have people who remind you, you know, the church is the people, not the building. 
And yet sometimes what do we do? What, what did we say on Sunday mornings? We need to go to the church. So we refer to the gathering and we refer to the building both as the church. Well, synagogue is very similar, very similar concept here. Um, now, here's the, here's, the, here's the deal, though. We know so little about the synagogues. We actually know so little about synagogues. Uh, we have no idea how many synagogues they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. We have no idea how many synagogues there were even in Jerusalem uh, during any specific period of time. Um, at one point, it's estimated that there were 480 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and that is, that's prior to the destruction by, uh, by Titus. But we, we don't actually know the number. That is just a guess. We don't know how many synagogues there were. Um, but here's what you do see. In the New Testament, you see the synagogue is very important. It is the place where Jesus preached. So Jesus is going into synagogues and he's preaching. Uh, it's the place where the apostles go to preach. Uh, whenever they go to a new city, that's the first place they seek out. Let's go to the synagogue. We need to speak to them. And here's the deal. The synagogue also provides the structure of the liturgy for the New Testament church. And so we're going to see that in just a second when I lift this up. That's supposed to be a surprise. We weren't supposed to see that yet. Um, my hope today is that the synagogue will seem a little less enigmatic to you, um, that it will seem a little bit less mysterious to you. Um, so let's talk about where it comes from. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where the synagogue comes from. It, depending on who you read, there are different theories. Um, there, are, there are a few different theories. I'm going to give you a couple. Here's one theory. One theory is that the synagogue came about during the exile in Babylon. So during the exile in Babylon, the, the temple is destroyed. And then in this, in this theory, Israel needed to replace what had been lost. There's no temple, so what are they going to do? We've got to gather. We've got to worship. So they, on a practical level, they say, well, now since we don't have the temple, we're going to meet in our different localities and we're still going to worship. We're still going to read from the law. We're still going to read. We're going to read from the prophets. Uh, we're still going to sing together. We're going to do the things that, that they used to do in the temple, or at least some of the things that we used to do in the temple. Mm-hmm. So that's one theory that after the, the, after the being taken away to Babylon, the synagogue forms. There's another theory that synagogues go back to the time of the worship reforms under Hezekiah, which would be earlier. So in other words, by the time of Hezekiah, <coughs> there is a realization that everybody needs to have some sort of place of place. Sorry. My <coughs> oh, I feel bad for whoever's listening on there. Sorry, people. <coughs> I've got water up here. I'm going to drink it. I think Hughes, Olive, and Old articulates a very good understanding of where the synagogues may have come from. Synagogues existed before the the reform of Hezekiah. That's what he thinks. He thinks synagogues existed even before the time of Hezekiah. By the way, Hughes, Olive, and Old, I quoted him last week. I found out that he died while I was teaching. I was very sad. Um, he's with the Lord now, I'm very glad to say, um, or I'm confident to say. But, what's that? No, he had already died some time ago, but I just am not up on things, apparently, and Micah was. So, what Hughes Oliphant Old says is, look, as it, 
people have needed to gather on a weekly basis just as a practical reality. Um, it's not even just about the temple. It's not even about replacing the temple. Just think about it from the perspective of a Hebrew. You need to read the law. You need to observe God's word. You need to read scripture together. You need to meet to encourage each other. So it's not mandated in the scripture that they're supposed to meet somewhere, and yet they do as a practicality. And so his reasoning is there must have been a place for people who are not near Jerusalem to still meet, to still pray, to read scripture, to guard the traditions, to recount their stories with each other. And, and he says, look, there must have been some sort of Sabbath assembly in cities outside of Jerusalem. There just must have. So once the sacrifices are discontinued, the synagogue still remains, right? Because this is a practice that still endures. Even though you've lost the temple, you still have a place to worship. That's his, that's his understanding. But here is the reality. The truth is there is so little trace left for us to fill in the historical. There's, there's, there's little trace of anything that we could actually use to fill in the historical gaps. Um, here's what Old does say. At least it can be said that within a short time after the exile, the synagogue was a firmly established institution. So you can at least say that much. But there's nobody that wrote down anywhere, here's where they started. Here's, where we, who's, here's whose idea it was. Uh, here's, here, you know, we just don't have anything like that. Um, <clears throat> um, let's talk about the synagogue itself. Modern day synagogues are built facing toward Jerusalem. Uh, Synagogues built before that are not facing toward Jerusalem. Um, After the fall of the temple in 70 AD, they began to be seen primarily as places of prayer. That's why the whole building structure is built for prayer. Um, And you see this in mosques today, right? If you go into a mosque, which way is the building facing? Built facing towards Mecca. Because the building is primarily understood to be a place of prayer. Well, if you look, excavated first century synagogues don't face toward Jerusalem. Um, Their purpose before the temple was not primarily prayer. Instead, it was Torah reading. So you're reading the first five books of Moses. You're reading the Torah. That's the primary reason why they're gathered together. Um, we know a few, few reasons why. One of these is something called a Theodotus inscription. There was a Theodotus inscription that was left behind um, on an excavated first century synagogue. So basically, it's like an inscription that's written on this building. And it says Theodotus, that's the name of the person. Uh, Theodotus built the synagogue for the reading of the Torah and the teaching of the commandments. And also the guest chamber and the upper rooms and the ritual pools of water for lodging for those needing them from abroad, which his fathers, the elders, and Simonides founded. So in this note, just what's the thing that's missing from there? Huh? Prayer. There's no, there's no reference to the synagogue as being a place of prayer. After the destruction of the temple, that's what it is. Before that, it's seen as a place of teaching. It's seen as a place of keeping the Torah alive of reading the Torah and everybody knowing what God's law has to say. Um, And also, there's also clearly in the synagogue, there's room for like travelers to stay. So if somebody's passing through, maybe there's a visiting rabbi, you've got a place where they can have uh, somewhere to sleep and somewhere to rest and get ready to go on the road again. And so we also have found synagogues excavated from the first century. They have benches around the room and they're facing toward the central area. What's taking place in the central area of the room in the first century synagogue? They're reading the Torah. 
They have a platform, someone's standing at it, they're reading from the Torah, and they're teaching. We're going to talk more about that. But the fact that the room has this centralized structure to it shows that it's not meant to be sort of a scattered room for just general gathering, but it has a central focus even in its construction. Um, um, And there was a room off to the side, a protected room, where they would put the different scrolls. So each time it's time for somebody to read from the Torah, they would go over and they would pull the scrolls out. They also have other scrolls. They have the scrolls of the prophets. We'll talk about that in just a second. Um, Now, synagogues never assume the sacrifices. They're not doing sacrifices in the synagogues. Um, They do take one thing over from the temple, though, singing. Singing takes place in the temple, but then eventually the synagogue, we don't know when, we don't know what time the change happens, but it could have been from the earliest days. They could have, you know, David could be writing the Psalms for Israel and they could be singing them in all these different synagogues, multiplying scrolls, taking them to places and singing from them. But we do know that eventually they take the Psalms from the temple and um, they start singing them. Here's what they did. They had a regular ordered Psalm singing. So on weekdays, they didn't just meet once a week. Synagogues would, would, would meet during the week. On weekdays, they would sing Psalm 145 to Psalm 150. On Sundays, or uh, no, on Saturdays, <laughs> Sabbath day, they would sing Psalm 95 to Psalm 100. Uh, singing would be led by a cantor, somebody up front who is leading with their voice that everybody else is following. You know, if you don't have an organ to carry that tune, you need somebody up front who can, who can carry that tune. Now, they, they would do a, a few different things. At least they, there appears to have been a variety of ways that they would sing. So one person would sing, and then what would happen? The congregation would sing something in response, you know. Um, uh, the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And then he would sing something, and then they'd say, the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And you would have those sort of things taking place. You would also have uh, maybe a passage of scripture that they would have memorized. And so uh, the one would sing the first lines, and somebody would sing the second line. And you would sing, that's called antiphonal singing. So you'd go back and forth. Um, We have no idea what the music sounded like. That's all I have to say about that. Um, (laughs) We know what um, music from uh, from the Middle East sounds like today. We know that there is a certain flavor to that music that seems to be regional it would be very difficult to ascertain. I, I don't even know what the oldest piece of music that we have from that time period is. I know somebody knows, and, and it's not me. Um, but we don't know exactly what their singing sounded like in the, in the synagogue, certainly. Um, synagogue service began and ended with the singing of psalms. So this is what the tradition, Christian tradition readily took up. So the Christians, when the New Testament uh, churches start meeting... They're happy to do this. You know, Paul commands them to sing psalms in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, right? He, he wants them to take up this thing that they've been doing in the synagogues already. And just like the synagogues had cantors, almost certainly Christians had cantors as well to help lead the singing. Now, there ends up being conflict between the temple and the synagogue. Um, there were a, was, a, was conflict at times between those who were in charge of the temple and those who were in charge of the synagogues. The temple was ruled by the Sadducees. The synagogues were largely ruled by the more populist leaders within Judaism, uh, peoples whose theology we would think of as the Pharisees. Um, 
The Sadducees, are, at times, they're sort of the aristocrats. They're the upper crust of Jewish society. And the Sadducees complained that some of the synagogues were built to look like little temples. They started complaining that, hey, you, this building is a little too close to a temple. Uh, just remember, your little synagogue is not a new little temple, you know. And then um, there was language in the liturgies of the synagogue that apparently used the word offering. And some people complained, hey, you can't use this temple language in the synagogue. Make sure you clearly distinguish the synagogue from the temple. Don't mix them together. And, um, you know, it's possible that people who could rarely attend Jerusalem to go to the temple would want the experience of a small temple in their locations. It's not impossible to believe. Um, You have certainly some Jewish people that maybe had had never been to Jerusalem, depending on how far they were away from it. Um, Now, according to the Mishnah, which is a collection of traditions from the Jewish people dating back to around the time of Jesus, there were five things that made up the synagogue service in the first century. And so that's what we've got here on this page here. Five things that made up the service. Now, obviously, I said the service would open and close with the singing of a psalm. But what else was in the service? They first, they would have the recitation of the Shema. You guys might remember the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, they would repeat the Shema uh, at the opening of the synagogue service. So they're opening up with a corporate confession of common faith, right? We all believe this. The Lord our God is one. They would also have something called the Tefillah. The Tefillah is a prayer of 18 blessings, um, just a series of prayers, basically, that they would pray corporately as a congregation. Um, They would have the priestly blessing. This is the pronouncement of the blessing of Aaron. Where do we, do we use this at all in our service? We do. We use it at the very end of the service. I, I do the Aaronic blessing. Now, it's not the only way to do a benediction. It is my preferred benediction. Truthfully, the reason I like that benediction is it suits my covenant theology really well. Um, It represents, I'm looking at you as a congregation, and I am seeing in you the very people that God was speaking to through Aaron, and seeing his people and saying, you are God's people. You, the Hebrew people, are God's people. And now it's a great blessing to be able to look at, at this room full of I don't know if we have any Jewish people in here, but I know that we've got some Gentiles in here, because uh, I'm one of them at least, and to be able to look at Gentiles and to be able to pray this Hebrew blessing over you and to have it be true. Um, and so I love the ironic blessing. That's why I choose to use it each time. I've been to plenty of churches where they read other benedictions, and uh, I just have no uh, strong feelings on the issue one way or the other. We'll talk about benedictions later, though. Um, <clears throat> they also did the... Torah reading. This is actually the substantial portion of the service that they're having there. This is what they're going to occupy most of their time doing. By the end of the first century, the reading is on a set schedule. So each Saturday, they would have, this is the passage that you are supposed to read. Um, We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, Then we have the Kaddish. The Kaddish is is a prayer that God would hasten to fulfill his word. It's just a Corporate prayer that God, please do these things, right? God, accomplish these things. Almost like an amen, sort of, you know, God, do this. I would say this. All of this is familiar to Christians in our worship service. We may not use these terms. We don't, we don't use the Kaddish, right? But we have, we have a Tefillah, right? We have 
corporate prayers that we pray during the worship service. Um, our services are filled with prayer. So was the services in the synagogue. Um, they have a confession of faith that they also share together. Um, we have a confession of faith as well that we repeat each Sunday. Uh, we alternate. We have different confessions of faith, but we do the same practice of confessing the faith together. We, receive, we, we read the Torah as well. We read the Torah. We read the prophets. We read the New Testament as well. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about why I put prophets reading after Torah reading in just a second. Um, this is important, actually, to understand more what the service is really like. But all of this is familiar. Uh, if, you went to a, uh, if you went to a synagogue service, it would not seem night and day to you. Um, the first account we have of, of Scripture being read, I'm going to talk about preaching in the synagogue. Because we maybe think of preaching as something Christians do, but, but preaching is something that took place in the synagogues as well. The first account we have of Scripture being publicly read in Israel is in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, Hughes Old in his book on preaching in the church says that this is the oldest description we have of a liturgy of the word. Um, This takes place around 428 BC when Nehemiah does the reading of Scripture. And the order of Nehemiah 8 is essentially the order that became traditional in the synagogue. What happens? The reading of the book of the law of Moses. Right. This is one of the essential functions of Israel. Its job is to hear and understand and teach the law. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And so that's what he does. Um, the reading of the law in itself, if you look at that passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, is itself treated as an act of worship. Because what happens? Israel reads and he explains the text. And he does it from a wooden pulpit. Uh, he does it from a wooden platform that he's standing at. It's, it just... It so resembles preaching that you would have just said that what he was doing was preaching. Um, the fact that they, he's standing at the platform, the fact that he's opening it in the sight of the people, the fact that they stand as he does so, the text actually tells us that they stood for the reading of the word, shows us that these two acts are seen as a liturgical act. They're seen as a part of worship, um, a sign of reverence, uh, a sign of attention. Right? We're giving attention to this law that you're reading to us. Um, the idea here is that when you hear God's word, you are hearing God. It is like the voice of God thundering from Sinai, you know, coming down and the people are terrified at the foot of Sinai, right? And same thing here. When the word gets read, what can the Israelites do but stand as they listen to it being read? Because they're hearing the God of heaven and earth speak. Um, Hughes Old says there was a considerable amount of ceremonial framing of the public reading of Scripture here. So then after the Scripture is read, what happens? The text of Scripture is explained. Um, The point of Nehemiah's sermon was to make clear what the Scripture was saying and for the people to respond with their lives. He's not satisfied to just do it out loud, right? He's not satisfied to just read it out loud and say, well, there you go, Lord. I read it out loud. Everybody heard it. It's on them now if they didn't get it. Uh, instead, it actually says in the text that he made, made sure to explain it so that the meaning of the text was understood. Um, we're talking here about exposition of Scripture, right? We're just talking about explaining what's there in the Bible. Even the Hebrew people needed this done for them. Um, after the Scripture is read, they are explained. It was a text. It was a sermon with a text, an exposition, and an application. 
So then if you go over to the reading of Scripture in the synagogue, what do you have? Originally, each synagogue would read from the law each Sabbath. They would do what we call Lectio Continua. I've used that phrase here before to describe sort of my approach. What's Lectio Continua mean? I'm taking volunteers on this. Yeah, continuous reading, basically. So one after the other, right? We're successively reading through. So like next week, we're going to be back to Matthew. Um, I just just feel at home now in Matthew, and I have felt so not at home doing the sacrament series. I love the sacrament series, but I'm at home in Matthew, and I just love each week having the text come at us. Okay, what is next, Lord? What is next, Lord? You come to me. I'm tired of hunting for texts to do sermons on. I want you to give it to me. I love doing Lectio Continua preaching, and I, I'm going to feel right at home when we get back to it. Um, I just love also the fact that if it says something hard, it's like, hey, I didn't pick this text. God did. You know, That's a great – I love being able to blame God for good things. Um, but here's what happens, though. So they're reading straight through the text, but here's the thing. If you go to that synagogue over there or you go to this synagogue over here or this synagogue over here, they could be reading – any text uh, that, that they're at, right? Maybe, they, maybe, that, maybe that place reads for three hours and they are just tearing through it and they are just going for it and they are gonna finish that thing in just a few months. They're gonna have finished reading the whole Torah. And then this one over here, maybe they only read for an hour or maybe they only read for 20 minutes. Well, eventually you're gonna find that you never know where you are, wherever you're at in any of the synagogues. And so by the first century, they really said, look, we've got to figure this out. We've got to systematize this. And so by the second century, the synagogues have systematized their reading. So what do they do? They take the law of Moses, they divide it up into 155 portions. And they say, hey, look, every three years, we're going to finish reading the law together. We're all going to start on the same same Saturday, and we're going to finish uh, at the end of those three years. And every three years, we're going to start again. And that's how we know we'll always get through reading the law together. And so they synchronize their readings. Uh, They also did special readings and lessons in addition to their regular reading patterns. They would read also, though, from the prophets. That's why I included this in the list. And they would read the prophets after they would read the law. And here was why. They saw the prophets as interpreting or, in, in a sense, preaching what was read in the Torah. So they would, they would see this reading as being complementary to what came before. So they're, they're helping, the, the prophets are coming and explaining to us how we're not keeping something that's in the Torah. I mean, if you read the prophets, there's an awful lot of that. So you're getting a lot of accusation and a lot of grace also when you're reading the prophets. Um, <clears throat> so, what, so the prophets are seen as a commentary on what the law of Moses says. Here's the interesting thing. The language of prophesying. Prophesying, we think of prophesying, and what do we always think of? Yeah, we're going to tell somebody the future. We're going to say what's happening someday, what's going to happen later. And they saw prophesying, and the early church saw prophesying not as, I've got something, I've got a message for a guy in a red sweater, you know? (laughs) That happened on the 700 Club an awful lot, and I used to make fun of him as a teenager, and my father got very angry at me. He told me I was blaspheming God. <laughs> In case he was right, I probably shouldn't make fun. But I, <laughs> but, I mean, I, that, that was what I grew up with. I grew up in this like, really charismatic background. So I saw prophesying as that. But for, for, the, for the Jewish people, 
by the time of the, the, the second temple, they're, they're not expecting prophecy. Instead, what, is, what does it mean to prophesy? It means to read from the prophets. It means to have the scriptures explained for you. Then you go to the time of the Puritans and you have William Perkins writing a book called The Art of Prophesying. What is, what is William Perkins writing a, a book about with, <clears throat> with a title like The Art of Prophesying? I can just see a modern day charismatic being really disappointed when they pick up that book <laughs> because he's just talking about how to preach. He's talking about how to preach because for the Puritans to prophesy meant to explain God's law. It meant to explain God's word. It didn't mean to tell the future. It meant to say what God had done already. Um, so it's interesting how that terminology, how we think of it and how it sort of changes. I think for the Jewish people by the time of Jesus to prophesy meant to explain what God had already said. Of course, we see some exceptions, you know, prophesy Jesus who hit you, right? Um, when the soldiers talk to him, um, who knows how much they're twisting the word prophesy because they're obviously they're Gentiles, but they know the word and they know the Jews cared about this. Um, so the manner of the reading, let's talk about how they read. How do they read and teach? Well, Luke chapter four gives us this beautiful picture actually of this exact act taking place in a synagogue. There's so few descriptions of synagogue worship in this time period. It's kind of amazing. Um, if you go to Luke chapter four, verse 42, um, Actually, verse 16, sorry. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So what would this have been in the service? This would have been after the reading of the Torah. The Torah has been read. It would be so fascinating to know which part of the law he read first. Wouldn't just be neat to know, because... You know, our reading this morning in our New Testament passage, it was Jesus on the road to Emmaus talking to these men. And don't you just want to be a fly on that wall for that conversation as they're, they're ta- Jesus is showing how all of these scriptures speak about him. And you're just like, show them all to me. You know, you want to be there for it. Um, and I kind of feel the same way here. I would love to know which, which passage from the Torah was read before Jesus gets up. But he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And what does he read? Uh, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So it makes me wonder too, is Jesus given some latitude in what he can read? Does he, he, it looks like he intentionally picks this passage because it says he found the place where it was written. So I don't think this is a sign to him. I think this is his choice. And Jesus reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he just reads that. And then it says, he rolled up the scroll. There's just drama around this, right? It's so dramatic. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. This is typical. The seating position for the, the, for the rabbi is to seat, is to sit after reading the word. Um, the congregation, though, remains standing. It's a sign of attentiveness, right? And he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say? They love preaching back then even. They want to hear what's he going to say. Uh, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you think, well, what's, huh, what's, what's the response going to be? They're going to try to kill this guy, right? He says, no, they spoke well of him. 
and verse 22. Everybody in the synagogue is like, we like this guy. This guy's great. We love hearing the scripture has been fulfilled. It says, they spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Remember, this is, this is the town that he's from. Uh, this is his hometown. They're like, oh, look, our little, little Jesus has grown up. He's, he's a little preacher now. When I was a teenager, I got asked by a local church to preach one time. It was a terrible message. No one, I'm so glad it's been lost. But, you know, I just, I know it must have been gimmicky now. I look back and I'm like, I was like 17 years old. They shouldn't have asked a 17-year-old to preach. Um, but I'm, uh, I just imagine that everybody afterwards was like, oh, you did so well. And I'm like, I know you're just saying that, but it's still nice to hear. Um, but they're looking at Jesus and they're like, oh, look how great he is. And then he goes on. And he proceeds to say, basically, you guys are unbelievers and you are a place where the truth gets rejected and you have seen the scripture fulfilled in your, in your hearing. And, you know, here's what he does. He starts off so nice in his sermon exposition of the text. And then he has hard things to say to the congregation and they do not like what they hear at all. This is actually my nightmare, right? Like right. You, you don't want to preach and then have everybody get up and start throwing things at you and threatening to kill you. <clears throat> and that's what he does. He preaches the hard sermon. He preaches the sermon that he didn't want, that maybe he wouldn't want to preach because he knows what's going to happen. Uh, and, he, and it says, when they heard these things, so they heard part two of the sermon and suddenly they're, they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him from the cliff. Like, I mean, that's bad. That's a really, that's a bad response. <laughs> maybe the worst, maybe the worst response I've ever seen to a sermon. <clears throat> but yeah, it's a preacher's nightmare. Uh, you know, you, you preach a sermon, you're like, somebody's going to come up after me and they're not going to be happy with it. Oh no, I hope that doesn't happen. And you think about pulling your punches. And you don't think, well, what if the whole church grabbed me up, <laughs> it, it took me to uh, uh, Beacon Rock and gave me a good toss, you know? Like, so, um, but that's, that's what happens, right? That's sort of, this is a great glimpse into synagogue life. Um, and by the first century, here's what happens. Preaching holds a major role in synagogue worship. The interpretation takes place on two levels. Um, straightforward interpretation of the text and the language, into the language and speech of the people. So if the audience was Hebrew, this was no problem. Right? He just, they, they just read the text for a bunch of Hebrews. But in the majority Greek culture, this work was more challenging. They would read from the scroll and then they would have to make sure that the Greeks in the room understood it. Their, their goal was not just to get the sounds out, right? They're not superstitious about the reading of Scripture. They know that getting a sense of the understanding of it is what's important. But then there would be a sermon. And the sermon was supposed to be a learned interpretation and application of the text. Its goal was to teach, to admonish, to inspire, and to comfort the congregation. Um, let me talk a little bit about preaching methods, some things that we can find. Uh, one method, and this is very common, was a straightforward explanation, phrase by phrase. Let's just go through the text and let's see what's there. Let's start at the beginning and let's move to the end. It's certainly what I prefer. It's what I like best. Um, there was another method, though, that you end up seeing later in the early church, and that's called the string of pearls approach. So here's what you would do. You would begin with a text in the lesson, and then you would add a text 
on the same theme, and then you would add another text that comments on it. And so by the end, you've got the text of Scripture commenting on itself. So you're kind of seeing all the connections in Scripture. That's, that's what they called the string of pearls approach. Um, another method of teaching was, was uh, you'll be very familiar with this, parables. Um, the person who's preaching, the person who's teaching, explaining the text would make sure to, to tell stories. Stories are engaging, right? Some of you were falling asleep today until I told you about that prayer maze. I know it. Um, the prayer maze story came in and you were like, oh, wait, what was this? Um, stories have a way of engaging us. Stories have a way of bringing us back, making us think, oh, wait, where were we? Okay. And, um, and that's what would happen. Um, sometimes they would tell true stories. Sometimes they would tell imaginative stories. Um, Jesus has parables, um, and you see constant debate over whether the parables he told were true stories or whether he was making up a story to illustrate a point, right? You see people going, does he know about some rich man and Lazarus? Is this something that Jesus had a special knowledge of, or is this a story that he made up? Well, we don't know. This is the story that he told. We don't know if it was a true story. We don't know if it's a, a, just, if it's a, a parable, just a parable. We just don't know. So sometimes you would give real life illustrations. Sometimes you would tell a humorous story. Um, there, sometimes you would give true stories, but you would add imaginative elements to it. So here you go. One, one story is, uh, there's one uh, situation where a rabbi was talking about a woman. The Israelites are in the desert they're walking along, they're on their way to Canaan, and the rabbi wants to enhance the story. And so what did he do? Um, this is true. This isn't like a made-up story. <laughs> this is a real thing that the rabbi did. So this rabbi wants to illustrate the provision that God gave while they're in the desert. So what does he do? He starts describing this child who's hungry. And here they are, they're walking through the desert, and they're so hungry, and this child begins to cry. And so the rabbi described the woman reaching out in her, because of her child's hunger and finding a pomegranate, graciously provided by God in the desert. And here's what Hughes Old says about this storytelling element, the fact that he talks about God's provision in the desert like this. The good rabbi assured his congregation that he was doing no injustice to Scripture. Had not Moses himself said that during the 40 years from the time they left Egypt to the time they entered the promised land, God had provided for all their needs. This story probably raised many eyebrows at the time as it would today, but the history of, but the history of preaching, let us never forget, is filled with fun and fancy. So, you know, you're still struggling as a speaker, even a Jewish rabbi. How do I keep these people interested? How do I get them to see how excited I am about this text? And so that's what you see. Now, beautifully, it's like, this, it's like we actually landed the plane right where we need to. Um, we're, we're basically finished. Just a few concluding thoughts. When you think of the synagogue, I don't want you to think of something strange and foreign. Um, I hope even just what I've told you here today makes it feel more familiar. I hope that you, you see it as something that would have been familiar to Israel. It would have been familiar to a convert uh, to Judaism. Uh, it would have been familiar to Jesus. It would have been familiar to the apostles. Um, it would have been, and it should be familiar to us. And the reason is because given the structure of worship we use today, this is not foreign territory to us. Um, the idea of praying and singing and hearing from God and hearing his word, this is what we do. This is what we do still. And so we're still doing what God's people have always done. Um, there's more. 
you know, we, we have the Lord's Supper now. Um, Christ is a part of the preaching of the word. As Christ is central to the service, something that uh, I, I would argue was central to the synagogue, even if they didn't realize it. Even if they didn't realize it, Jesus is at the center of the synagogue. Um, and here's what happens. Even after the resurrection, Christians see their worship in the synagogue as part of their Christian worship. After the resurrection, people are still going to the synagogue. In fact, they're going to the synagogues, they're participating in the worship there, and when they can, they are so sneaky. They get into the pulpits and they preach as much as they can before they get driven out. Um, happens a lot. So uh, as we look at the New Testament worship next week, next week we're going to actually move into how did they worship in the New Testament. Understand that while Christian teaching uh, and the Lord's Supper are added to the synagogue service, the skeleton of the worship service, I would argue, is already in place. So the New Testament Christians, you know, the believers in the New Testament do not see themselves as creating something brand new, whole cloth. Instead, they're building off of this and they're saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Let's build our worship onto this because Jesus is still part of this. So, yeah, as we, as we look at that next week, hopefully we'll see that and hopefully this will feel less foreign to you. So anyway, let's pray and then feel free to ask me more questions afterwards. Father in heaven, we thank you for providing your word for your people so that your people were not without a witness, that your, your people had always had the Lord Jesus set before them as far back as Genesis 3. Uh, your people had heard of the coming one who would crush the serpent's head. And so even as your law was read in the synagogue, O oh God, we praise you that Christ was proclaimed and that he was set before your people. And we thank you that as we see in Acts chapter two, many of your people responded to the word and to the law and to the message of Jesus. And we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.